Good evening. Thanks for coming back tonight. Uh, appreciate your being out. I do not have a handout, so uh, you have to just kind of follow along and uh, try to listen. And so you uh, are going to need a Bible at times if you didn't bring one. Remember there's a Bible under the pew or uh, perhaps your phone app or, or something else. But as I said, tonight is going to focus on application of the morning's message. And I want to begin by talking about the importance of application, the importance of application. It is my belief that one of the main purposes of preaching is not only declare what the Word of God says, but help people to understand the Word of God, and then further, not only to understand the Word of God, but to learn how to interpret the Scripture for themselves. In other words, preaching ought to teach hermeneutics. It ought to be caught as to how you approach the Scriptures. For example, when I take a verse and, and you know I kind of dissect it and I highlight where particular points come from, it ought to teach you how to go about an exegetical study of the Bible. That's what you do. You work through a passage verse by verse, looking at each particular verse, asking how it fits in, uh, looking, breaking it down part by part, word studies, etc. So preaching ought to teach how to study the Word of God. And actually, one of the most important elements of preaching is the application. For that is what people remember. And not only is it what people remember, that is what people use, all right? That is what people go home with, understanding this is what I'm to do. This is, this is what this passage is teaching me as to either what I should believe or what practice should I enter into or what is it that I should refrain from, but it is teaching me how to live. So the application then is extremely important because that is going to govern the way in which we live. Therefore, the applications that come need to come directly from the Scripture. They need to be faithful to the Scripture. And so often it is that at that point there are these incredible leaps that take place. Um, people start ending into application that has nothing to do with the text. And something that is far more dangerous is in our culture, in our society, we don't want to hear 45 and 50 minute messages. We want 20 and 25 minute messages. I'm thankful for you that you will sit through a 45 and 15 minute message, but I tell you that's uncommon. That is uncommon. And so like this morning, you're in a long passage and you can't really break that up. It's one story and it doesn't make any sense to teach half the story one week and half the story the next week. It, it just doesn't fly. It doesn't, doesn't work. It's, it's a long portion of scripture. So what happens oftentimes is that people don't want to hear the exegesis. They don't want to spend the time in the scriptures. They just want to know the application. Just tell me what it says. Just tell me what I should do. 
Just tell me how I should live. Give me the five keys to this. Give me the four ways to do that. Just give me the application. That's what I want to know. Well, without the exegesis, the application can be all over the place, and it usually comes out of the own person's mind uh, rather than the Word of God. So tonight, I, I want us to look at application and also how to do application. So the first application has to do the le- with the lesson regarding protection. The lesson regarding protection. One common application that is made, I, I saw it in at least four different commentaries. Um, I have over 100 commentaries on uh, First Kings that I look at, consult, and at least four, and I don't always look at the same section, but it's the application section. At least four made this, this application. If you are faithful to God, you will be protected. The young man, when he was denouncing the altar, when he was proclaiming the truth of God's word, when the king stretched out his hand to take a hold of him, remember, his hand withered, and it seized up. And so the application is, if you are faithful to God, God will protect you. If you are unfaithful to God, you are in dangerous grounds and you may be destroyed. And because the prophet was unfaithful to God, well then the lion came along and killed him and he was destroyed. And then here's the bottom line, here's the takeaway, here's the punchline. There is no safer place to be then in the will of God. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter the danger that you are under, if you are in the will of God, you'll be safe. You'll be protected. Your only concern must be being in the will of God. Sounds powerful. Sounds great. How many have heard something like that? Right? It's a very, very common application. But now let's unpack that for a minute. All right? For that is not what this passage is teaching. And let me demonstrate that to you. First, the man of God had every reason to expect to be protected from the king. He had every reason to expect to be protected from the king, not because he was in the will of God, but because of what God said. Let's look at what God had said. 1 Kings 13, 8. And the man of God said to the king, If you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, 
You shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. He had instructions as to how to return. He had instructions as to what he was to do after he had denounced the false worship on the altar. Because he had these instructions as to what he was to do after he pronounced the destruction of this altar, he had confidence that he would be returning. He knew what the outcome would be. There are many places in the Word of God in which a person extrapolates from what God has said and comes up with an understanding of what God's promise is. Sometimes the understanding is not necessarily 100% right, but it produces faith. Let me give you another example, one that you're probably familiar with. And that is that Abraham offers up Isaac. And we all know the passage, many of us know the passage, in which, Isaac, in which Abraham says, he will return with me. <laughs> uh, he believes that he is going to return after offering up Isaac. We are not left to conjecture what's going on in Abraham's mind. The book of Hebrews tells us plainly. Abraham understood that he had a promise, and that was that Isaac was going to have children. Abraham knew that at that time Isaac had no child. So he believed God's word, and that was that Isaac was going to return with him, and he would eventually have children, because God had promised that Isaac was going to be children, and in Isaac's line, all the children of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, he reasoned that God was going to raise him from the dead. That's not how God did it. Instead, he provided a ram in the thicket. It doesn't matter. He believed on the basis of God's word that he was coming back. And he was right. He was going to come back. And he knew it because God had promised that Isaac was going to have children. Well, this prophet knew that God had said that he was going to return. So the fact that he was returning into a different way provided him with the understanding that he would not be killed by the king for crying out against the altar. He did not know that the Lord would cause the king's hand to wither. He did not know what crying out against the altar would do. He didn't know what the king's response was, but he did know that he was going to be returning. We cannot, however, say that if we are in the will of God, we will be protected against all harm. For the promise is not to every one of us that we're going to return. And if we're going to go down that line and say, well, God said he's going to return, so then I'm going to return also. Now, take the logic of that one. For the verse says this, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So if God's promise is that we will always return, well then we always have to go a different way than we came. 
So tonight, if you drove here and you came up from the north side of Mill Road, you need to go on the south side of Mill Road when you're going home. You can't pick and choose. You have to be consistent and faithful to the Word of God. We get the distinction in one case, but not the other. We quickly would reject the idea that we always have to return a different way, but we don't always quickly reject the idea that God promises us safety in every situation. And if you just are faithful to God, he will always deliver you. But there's a safeguard in the, in the scriptures that goes beyond our careful exegesis, and you can't get around the careful exegesis. All right, work on it, because that's where the application comes, and it's faithfulness to the word, and if you're faithful to the word, the application is true. If you're not faithful to the word, the application will be false. But one way you can guard yourself is by asking the simple question, is the application faithful and consistent to the entirety of the word of God. We are to understand the whole counsel of God. If an application is true, it's always true, if it's right. And so now we just have to say, does God always promise that if we are in the center of his will, that we'll always be protected and we'll never be harmed? Is that really what this Bible says? Listen carefully to Hebrews chapter 11, a passage I think many of us know. The first half of the passage deals with all those wonderful stories of the heroes of the faith and how God had used them and how God had protected them. Moving on, Hebrews 11, 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the whole world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These were heroes of the faith, and they were slain by the sword. God does not promise that if you are in the center of God's will, you will always be protected. Jim Elliot was not out of the center of God's will when he died for his faith on that missionary endeavor. It sounds so good, but you see, if that is what your hope is, then what happens when things go terribly wrong. Has God lied? Has God failed us? And the answer is no, we failed God by not rightly understanding his word. 
the applications are incredibly important. And they must be consistent with the scripture. Second lesson, closely related to this one, concerning the death of the man of God and the continuation of the old prophet. And we are very tempted to ask the question, why? Why? Why is the young prophet, the man of God, slain and the old prophet who lied allowed to continue on. Seems unjust. Seems unfair. Seems incomprehensible. For our understanding often is that faithfulness should be rewarded and unfaithfulness will not be rewarded. Again, looking at the whole counsel of God, looking at the greater teaching of Scripture, there is an informative dialogue that takes place between the resurrected Jesus and Peter in the book of John. Jesus said to him, that is Peter, the third time, this is after the resurrection on the seashore, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. He was talking about the fact that, that Peter would be crucified. And he was. Peter understood it. He got it. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John the one who also had leaned back upon him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about, what about John? I'm going to be crucified. What's going to happen to him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, the disciples, that John was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will for the, that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Jesus didn't say what was going to happen to John. We all know that John dies a natural death. What Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, what's that got to do with you? What's that got to do with you, Peter? You follow me. I said we must focus on what the scripture says and not on what the scripture does not say. 
there is no hint in the text as to why the old man is allowed to continue. I think we can come up with some ideas, but there is no definitive answer. There is no definitive answer. What is told us is not why he's allowed to continue. What is told us, therefore, what we must focus upon is the fact that he's allowed to continue. He's allowed to continue. He's allowed to continue. His life goes on. He continues as he always was. And there's a great lesson to be learned, and that is that God doesn't always immediately bring evil doing to a close. God doesn't always cause a person to pay for the things that they have done wrong in this life. Justice and reward is not experienced in this life, it's experienced in the life to come. All justice will prevail. All will be right. But the fact of the matter is, we often see the wicked prosper, don't we? And we also see the righteous suffering and being dealt with. And as I said this morning, judgment begins with the house of God. So, what do we need to understand? What do we need to apply? Why is it important for us to know this? Because one of the questions that people will ask time and time again is, Jesus, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? And with it carries the connotation, Lord, I don't deserve this. I have been faithful. I have gone to Sunday school. I have prayed. I have taught. I have given my life to you, and here I am. I'm 30 years old. I have a six-year-old child, and I have cancer. Why me? And there is this old wicked 90-year-old guy who defames you and takes your name in vain, and he's healthy, and he's continuing on. Why? The scriptures don't answer the question. The scriptures teach the reality. Yes, that's true. Sometimes righteous 30-year-old people die. And sometimes 90-year-old wicked people go on. What is more important is for us to understand than you can't make judgments you can't make declarations and say when this 30-year-old person dies, well, they must have lived unrighteously. Oh, then they must have been a huge sinner. Oh, there must be secret or hidden sins in their life. Oh, they must not have had enough faith. They must not have prayed. No. No, for there is no promise. God had not failed. 
God teaches us that in many ways there's no difference between the righteous and the unrighteous in this life. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. You can't look out when the rainstorm comes and say, oh, look, it, it rained on that side of the street. It didn't rain on this side of the street. That farmer obviously is in the will of God, and this farmer obviously has sinned because it's not raining on his side. No, it rains on the just and the unjust. Now, here's a careful thing to keep in mind. There are consequences for living an ungodly life, and there are blessings that are associated with living a godly life. You can't be guaranteed, but there are certain diseases you probably aren't going to get if you live a very godly life. And there are some diseases you probably will get if you live a very ungodly life. Natural outcomes, natural consequences. But don't don't equate that with God's reward and God's judgment. That's future. That's future. Yes, there are consequences to the lives that we live, but the reward is future. Such knowledge preserves us from doubting God's faithfulness again or the truthfulness of his word. For if that is our belief that that's what the word of God teaches, then again, when that doesn't come to pass, has God lied? Has God failed? Has God been unfaithful? So, applications are extremely, extremely important. Third, the lesson of the old prophet wanting to be associated with the young man. I said that to some extent this morning, but uh, I want to go into it in a little more detail. The unrighteous want to be thought of and treated like the righteous. In 1 Kings chapter 13, verse 30, the uh, old prophet, he'd already invited him back to his home. He already had him sit down and eat dinner with him. And do you see how that elevated the old prophet? The young man would not eat with the king. But the young man ate with the prophet which elevated the old prophet to a status that was more significant than the king he could swell in pride that the young prophet would eat with me when he wouldn't eat with the king and then it tells us in verse 30 and he laid the body, that is of the dead prophet, in his own grave. And they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother. And after he had buried him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. 
lay my bones beside his bones. He wanted to be identified with this man of God, not only in his life, but in his death for all time future. The saying that he called out by the word of the Lord, saying, the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places there in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. Now we have the fulfillment of that in 2 Kings chapter 23. Second chapter 23, Josiah, the king that's mentioned by name, the king who hadn't even been born yet, but the man of God said is going to burn the bones of the priests on this altar, finally occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 23, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 23, starting at verse 14. And he, that is Josiah, broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, which is what we're talking about, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord that the man of God had proclaimed who predicted these things. Here's the fulfillment. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. Their bones were side by side. Their bones were indistinguishable. He said, let them alone. Let them alone. For the legacy that the man of God had was, yes, he was not burned on the altar, but also his bones weren't dug up and taken to Jerusalem. He remained in Bethel. Because the prophecy was he would not be buried with his fathers. It was a disgrace. He wasn't allowed to return home. He wasn't given an honorable burial. He would be forever linked with this prophet who had lied. They were inseparable. False worship destroys, and it destroys, among other things, our testimonies, our legacy. There are teachers and preachers that run amok. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be banned from heaven. In fact, they won't be banned from heaven. 
but their legacy certainly is destroyed. Their reputation is shot. It's sad what happens as a result of his disobedience. We could also look at the detailed nature of God's prophecies, how he speaks of people's names before they even exist. And there are numerous such prophecies in the scripture. Cyrus is another. It's predicted that he's going to give an order for the children of Israel to return to the promised land and to build. He does. That's the book of Isaiah. Fourth, the lesson, and again, I hinted at this morning, is the lesson of the power of the word as being distinct from the godliness of the prophet. Again, let me read Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. God's word is effectual. God's word is powerful, and God's word is not contingent upon the messenger of that word. What the prophet said came to pass. The altar was destroyed. All that he proclaimed was not undone. There was not anything that God said he was going to do that he didn't do. The power of God's word is not based on our godliness. And we can thank God that it isn't. But then how godly would we have to be to be effectual? Now that should not be a motivation for sinfulness, of course. Should we strive to be godly? Yes. Yes. But it helps us to understand, people, how it is that there can be this famous person who had been greatly used by God and been involved in an affair and all kinds of things for 15 years and it finally comes to light. And everybody's shocked. How can that be? Because the power of the word of God is not based on whether or not he had an affair. God's word is powerful. It is God's word that brings about conversion. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by, not by the faithfulness of the preacher. Not by the godliness of the preacher. By the power of the word of God. Even an unfaithful man who is being faithful to the scriptures is going to be effectual. It is for that reason, Paul says, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14 and following, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now listen to this. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put off here for the defense of the gospel, 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but wanting to add to my affliction and imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice and will rejoice. Paul says, Christ is being proclaimed. And that I'm going to rejoice. Whether the person is selfish, whether the person is ambitious, whether the person is trying to harm me, if Christ is being preached, I will rejoice. But there's a balance in these things. For then Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He says, identify these people, have nothing to do with these people. It isn't that who cares whether there's truth or not, but Paul is saying, if Christ is being preached, it's going to be effectual. And then he goes on to say, but identify those and have nothing to do with them. Therefore, you cannot ascertain faithfulness based on the effectualness of a person's ministry. Or a person can be a scoundrel and yet be used of God. And it doesn't even matter whether they are a scoundrel. God can speak through anybody. And God can speak through anything. A bush and even a donkey. We all know the story of Balaam, do we not? And it isn't because he had the most righteous donkey on the face of the earth. But it's because God chose to use this donkey and to speak forth his truth and confront Balaam. And now we find another interesting truth, and that is that God often uses the ungodly in rebuking the godly. God often uses the ungodly to rebuke the godly. It is a way of bringing humiliation. It is a way to further the condemnation that the ungodly can see what the godly should have seen. That the ungodly point out the sin of the godly. And again, I won't take you on a tour of the scriptures, but Remember when Abraham tells the half-truth about Sarah? He's afraid that Sarah is going to uh, be the, his downfall because she's so beautiful. They're going to want to kill Abraham and take her as a wife. So he says concerning Sarah, say you're my sister. Now that's a half-truth because she's kind of his sister, but she's his wife. Who's the one that rebukes Abraham for that? 
Abimelech, an ungodly king, says to Abraham, you have deceived me. Don't you realize what could have happened? I could have taken her. I could have had sex with her. And understand that God's purpose is greater than Abraham, and it's greater than Sarah, and it's greater than Abimelech. And that life is about things that are greater and bigger than we are. For God's great grace is that Abimelech never had a sexual relationship with Sarah, and it tells us that he didn't. That was not to reward Abraham's lie. That was not to reward Sarah's going along with Abraham. Abraham thought, I can't be protected in this place. But God revealed that he can protect. And Abraham actually goes out with more than he came with. He's actually becomes rich through this whole thing. But the big reason that God kept Abimelech from having sex with Sarah is so there'd be no question who fathered Isaac. God was faithful to his promises. And there was no doubt in Abraham and Sarah's mind whose child this is. What grace of God. And how God is gracious in our lives even when we don't deserve it. Because he has greater purposes than just us but his sovereign will and plan. Last lesson. Who we must fear. And we've heard it time and time again that we must fear God and not man. But this passage teaches that in a very powerful way. The man of God had no reason to fear the king. And interestingly enough, he didn't. He didn't. He proclaimed he spoke, God protected, God preserved, as he knew he would because he was told that he must return in a different way. The king was a perceived danger. Readily understandable. We can all see the danger in that. What is difficult in life is to see is the danger in failing to be faithful to God. We can see how hard it is to be faithful and what risks that we may have. They come to the very forefront of our mind. We're quick to understand what persecution is like. We're quick to understand what mockery is like. We're quick to understand what could happen if I'm faithful to God, but we fail to give much thought about what could happen if we are unfaithful to God. And oftentimes those consequences are unforeseeable. We don't know. Who would have thought that a lion was going to come out of nowhere and kill him. That wasn't foreseeable. 
That wasn't expected. He never could have conjured up in his mind that if I don't do what God says that a lion is going to get me, but, but he did. And the scripture is clear that the lion was sent by God. Tells us that. But not only does it tell us that, but in his grace, God made that clear to everyone. For it tells us that as he went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road by the lion. And the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the donkey. Behold, men passed and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet was. And when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him, according to the word that the Lord spoke to him. And he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and he found his body thrown on the road and the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. The lion had not eaten the body or torn the donkey. The lion didn't attack the man because he was hungry. He didn't eat him. He didn't attack the man because he was just ferocious and aggressive. Or he did not attack the donkey. And he just didn't have it in for humans because he didn't attack the prophet, the old guy, when he got there. He stand, the lion is standing over the body when the old prophet picks him up. This was an act of God. It was a testimony to be learned by all that we're not to fear men. We're to fear God. We must be careful in our obedience and our allegiance to him. The great, great takeaway is false worship is destructive. It's not acceptable to God. He speaks against it. It's not that God is indifferent to it, and he certainly doesn't accept it. And that was last week. And I, and I said, not all, not all roads lead to Rome. Not all beliefs lead to heaven. It matters what you believe. False worship is not acceptable to God. False worship will not be tolerated forever. False worship will come to an end. Eventually. But true worship will go on forever and ever. And we'll be in the presence of God. Worshiping before his throne. Forever and ever. Let's pray. Help us, O oh God, as we study your word, as we make application. Give us hearts and minds that do good diligence, that we think about the things that we're told. For so often, we are told things that simply aren't true. People mean well. We hear the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and children are taught that as long as you have faith, you'll be delivered. 
there are a lot of misconceptions about what your word says because of the applications that we make. So first of all, help us as Sunday school teachers, help us as preachers, teachers of your word, that when we make application, what we're saying your word says, it actually says. What we're telling people to do that is actually because God's word tells them to do it. When we tell them to refrain, that God's word actually teaches them to refrain, not because we think it's what's best or most valuable. Lord, give us such a respect for your word that we simply refuse to deviate from it. Lord, may we long to know it and to know it more fully. And Lord, may we desire to appropriate it. We think, Lord, of that great verse in the book of Ezra, why Ezra was a man who God was with. For Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and ordinances. Lord, may that be the way we go about your word. First, to seek it. Second, to do it. And lastly, to teach it. Lord, guard us from wanting to be teachers without doers and teachers without understanding it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and we're dismissed.